All right. Live chat. Julie Kelly. Starting a couple of minutes early. So I can give a little bit of preamble about Julie. So I can embarrass her while she's not live yet. <laughs> I, <laughs> right there. What's up, Julie? I'll hit you in a sec. So Julie Kelly, mm, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, I was a high performance race coach for 15 years. And in that time I coached, I don't even know how many athletes around the world. Uh, at one point I had, I was coaching a lot of athletes um, simultaneously around the world. I was busy. And uh, Julie, I think I'd been coaching about five years when Julie contacted me. In fact, uh, I believe we started off, got to know each other from the same race team, Dead Goat Racing out of Calgary. <clears throat> Good crew, hard charging crew. Probably the best team in Western Canada at the time, maybe in Canada, who knows. They were hammers. And uh, actually, it's that crew where I learned to uh, appreciate single-speed racing. A couple of guys in that team that inspired me to engage in the harder path of single-speed. So shout out to them. Tim uh, was one of the guys who got me on that path. And I think through that uh, Dead Coat Racing, Julie and I connected and she said, hey, uh, I'm interested in some coaching. And, and so... That went on for about 10 years, I think. Maybe Julie will be able to clean that up for me a little bit. I think I coached her for about 10 years. And by that comment, I coached her. I, It's easy to say it, and it helps people understand that that's what I did. But coaching isn't just a, a one-way street. It's a two-way street. And um, I've had a you know multiple athletes that I've coached, but I have always considered them as friends and always considered them as um, partners in the progress forward. So Julie would be one of many that I partnered with to pursue their own excellence and see what we could craft together. And through that process, uh, she went on to smash out some world championships and um, I don't even know how many 24-hour solos uh, we did together or I coached her uh, through the process. I wanna say maybe 20, uh, maybe she'll let me know. And and I don't even know how many other races, the, the six hour races and the 10 hour races, the 12 hour races, the eight hour races, the short races, the, the, the stage races, uh, the Breck epics of the world, you know, kind of a seven day high altitude, multi-stage race, just, all kinds of races that I've uh, stood next to Julie, where she has, where I, I got to watch her from a, a, a humble start of wanting to be more for herself. And through the process, she learned so much stuff. And not only learned it from me, but learned it through the process of encouraging her and exposing her to new things that she then pursued herself and dove down her own rabbit holes to learn more about herself. And not just me teaching her and her teaching herself, but the team that we had going at the time was a crusher team. I mean, we had a good team. And um, 
Yeah, man, the, the team that we had was inspiring all of us, inspiring her, inspiring me, inspiring each other. It was, it was a good 15 years where I got to apply all the things that I learned in the military, that I got to learn while I was working overseas, running a coffee shop, being a computer system, all the, all the careers that I had that led me up to engaging in a high-performance race coach career was all applied during those 15 years and on behalf of people like Julie, but in engaging with them, I learned so much more about what it means to be a coach, a leader, a mentor, a therapist, a hard charging, whip cracking, stick beating, sometimes use a carrot, but more often the stick kind of leading the way attitude. And through that process, um, I inspired people and they inspired me and, and, and it was rad. It was a great 15 years. One of the reasons that I stopped coaching, <clears throat> in fact, Julie might talk about this, who knows? I don't know what we'll talk about. I'm just giving the preamble right now. Uh, I stopped coaching formally um, just a touch over a year ago. And uh, that came about through a process of I had, I, I got in touch with a guy called Seb Lebois. We had chatted and Seb inspired me to, to be more helpful. We talked about some things. I started looking at things. I started realizing how difficult it was out there for veterans, first responders and law enforcement, people who were currently serving, people who were thinking about serving. It was really just the rate of the suicide rates. It was the mental health issues that I was seeing at the time that I wasn't really overly familiar with but as soon as I started looking at how prevalent it was how 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 common it was becoming I just had to do something about it I couldn't unsee what I had seen in that brief period of time of talking with Seb Lavois and then looking at things myself and so in very short order within a matter of weeks I decided that uh, that was it. I was going to retire from high performance race coaching. I was bummed to give up uh, all of the athletes that I was working with because, you know, I knew some of those folks better than, you know, I know anyone. And, uh, you know, I had a real good relationship with a lot of them. Really, really close relationships. So to give up my team, give up the team, our team, it was a tough call. I didn't enjoy it at all. But I did it because I, I realized there was something more that I had to do something higher calling that I had to do something that was perhaps more righteous. And so I engaged with that process and I let go of um, my last athletes the day after uh, a 24 hour solo mountain bike race down in Utah, uh, where uh, two of my favorite athletes, uh, Julie Kelly and Andrew Bovard, uh, were racing. I was there to support them as their coach in my final capacity of coaching uh, someone formally through a 24-hour race. They didn't know, good morning, they didn't know that I was going to be releasing them uh, as athletes. They didn't know that that day was the day that I was going to quit as a high-performance race coach. And so it was a bit of a surprise to them. It was a, it was a moment. <laughs> but uh, I'd already decided at that point that I I'm not a guy who just abandons a team or I'm not a guy who turns my back if there's no solution in place. So I'd been carefully um, 
crafting the ability for Julie to take over the reins of coaching in my absence. So the day I quit was the day I passed on the torch to Julie Kelly, the torch, the Pathfinder torch. I had to pass on the torch because I was then moving on to my next project, this 10-year project that I'm in right now, uh, called, and I termed it, Digital Pathfinder Project. I had to go from a three-dimensional Pathfinder into a digital Pathfinder role in order to engage in the process that I am in right now, which I have now passed through my first phase, my first year, and uh, I'm now into year two. So that is the preamble. That's how I know Julie. We've been, we've bounced around the world. We've been at countless races. We've, we've been in the cold, the heat, the, the rain, the snow, the, we've been in all kinds of conditions. Some of the harshest conditions you can race in, some of the hardest competitors you can race against, some of the most cruel bad luck conditions that you can face, some of the highest highs and the lowest lows, blood, sweat, and tears, all of it. She's seen it all. She's seen it for herself. She's seen it. I was racing alongside my athletes for many years. They've seen how I like to lead the way, how I like to race, how I like to hard charge, how I act when I fail and I fail lots of times. You know, she's seen as much of me as I've seen of her and as, as much as I've seen of my athletes. They've all got to They have all managed to share in our collective journey. And it was rad. Maybe we'll talk about that as well. So I don't know what we'll talk about. That's a preamble. Julie's awesome. We'll see what's up. About to invite her. Julie Kelly. Look at that. Who knew I would ever be inviting Julie Kelly to a live chat on IG? Not me. Let's see if she's going to join. I can't hear you and I can't see you. Can't see you at all. It looks like you're looks like you're sitting in a snowstorm. Oh, look at that! I'm looking at your desktop right now. Ah, hey, flash from the past. I love it. FordMomentumCoaching.com. That's that's old schooly. Yeah, go team. I love it. How are you making out? Good. You can see and hear me now. I can. Uh, yeah, sound great. Good uh, visual. Awesome. Thanks. Do you got a coffee? Well, I've already had my coffee. So I bet you have. You always <laughs> have yours way sooner than I do. So if you don't mind, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to be enjoying my, uh, you're not going to like this, by the way. I'm going to have my first sip and then I'm going to explain to you why you don't like it. I think you probably know why. What do you think I'm drinking right now that you don't like? Uh, I would 100% guess it's a Kenyan. It's just a Kenyan. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice though. It's uh, it's a uh, It's from uh, the uh, Karimakui uh, Kirinyaga uh, area. The uh, nice washing station, and it's a mix of uh, four different varietals: uh, SL28 and blah blah blah, whatever. It's nice. It's really nice. You wouldn't like it. Because you don't like Kenyans. But uh, it's a great coffee. What are you drinking right now? What are you drinking nowadays that my freaking coffee roaster is broken? Uh, 
Well, the monogram wasn't too bad. I ordered a couple of uh, Ethiopians from monogram. They weren't bad, but again, you know, it's not the same. It's so hard. I'm struggling. It's so hard, right? It's it's hard to unsee good coffee. <laughs> yeah, I have to get your uh, machine fixed. Oh, uh, listen. I know. It's a problem. My drum motor, uh, uh, it's, it's causing me concern. So you probably heard uh, my preamble where I went on to describe how awesome you are. Uh, all well-deserved, of course. And I thought what we would do in this live chat is just see where it goes. You've seen my shtick before. You've known me uh, longer than most people who would be watching this, I think. And so you know how I run my program. I don't need a, a grand parade. I don't need to. I'm lucky if, if I even comb my hair before I talk to someone. So there, any chat that I do, anything that I talk about, it usually I, I require about five seconds notice. And then I just dive into it. So there's never a script. There's never, I know exactly where this is going. We're just chatting. You know the deal. Sounds good. So how about, um, is there anything that uh, stands out to you? Um, sort of first topic that you think you'd like to talk about or something that you've learned or something that since since you and I sort of, since I had to stop coaching you to co on the coaching range, something that uh, a novel idea that you've uh, had to consider or is there anything that kind of comes to mind that you'd like to talk about? By the way, we could do this, you know, 12 times. We could do this a hundred times and we'd still have lots of, to talk about. So we'll probably have to do this again. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, the biggest thing that I had to wrap my head around and learn from a coaching perspective was the mental aspect. So uh, just how to get inside people's head, because everyone is different as an individual, how to communicate the information to them, and just how to mentally prepare someone. That was the biggest learning curve for me. I mean, I had a pretty good grasp on the physical aspect based on the racing I had done and you coaching me for the 10 years. So it was just more about how do I then step into the mental side. And as soon as I started to, you know, dive into that topic, then it all started to make sense. And all the things that you started to say to me at races, oh yeah, now I understand why you said that and why you said it and when you said it and all started to um, make sense. Make yeah. It's, it's cool, right? I mean, like, you know, I think one of the things that maybe I didn't do as well as I could have, but I'm not sure I would have done it any different. I'd have to think about it some more. And maybe you can answer this question for me is, of course, I had a lot of athletes on the go and they're in all phases of their racing. They're in all phases of their evolution. But as you just um, uh, carefully said and wisely said, the racing is it's all it's all mental everything that you do in a 24-hour solo is all mental it's like life it's a mental game everything is run uh through a carefully um carefully calculated program of discipline and focus and consistency and all of those things but your head the mindset is what uh, uh 
allows us to progress to our highest levels. And, you know, through those years, of course, uh, it, you just can't, or I couldn't find a way to just dump all of my knowledge into a person in a week. And then a week later, dump all of the requirements that they need to understand on how important the mental game is. It takes a long time to almost trickle that stuff out to an athlete or to an individual in order to not overwhelm them. Or more importantly, I think, and this is really the point I'm making, is I believe there is a natural evolutionary process for each athlete or for each person where they need to bump into those hard lessons, those hard failures, those obstacles that they can't work around or, or go over or go through. Like they just get stuck against something that they've really got to not quite suffer, but they kind of got to suffer a little bit before you can give them the solution or give them the wisdom or help recalibrate them or re-guide them in a different way so that they can grow out of the moment. I wish I could have just hit a big red button on most athletes and pumped all of my knowledge into their heads and then say, go get it. But it doesn't work that way, does it? No, they've got to, you have to learn the hard lessons yourself uh, first in training and then the more experience you get in racing. So it's, uh, you can prepare someone, but you you have to experience yourself. Yeah, agreed. So what do you think, you know, you've been at it a year now and uh, when you when you kicked off your coaching company uh, which you need to talk about by the way um, you you had some initial challenges we'll call it and you had to navigate some of those challenges with athletes because now you were working with athletes in a different way than you'd worked with in the past. And I think primarily it's, as you've already indicated, learning how to better get in their head to help them get out of their head. Um, and so what, what was the most difficult part about that for you in those early months that you and I were communicating and trying to find a better way what what for you was the most difficult part yeah i mean as your point just understanding how to get the message through to them and everyone learns in a different way so sometimes you just have to keep going back to the drawing board and you're trying to send the message but they're still not getting it so then you have to work on yourself well how can i communicate this in a different way so they're getting the message um, are they number-based? Are they visual? How are you going to get the message through to them? And hopefully you do. So it was just more of the communication and, as you said, mentally trying to get into their head and get them to understand and buy into the process and, you know, why why you're doing the thing. Some people want to know the science or the what's behind it and others just want to point and shoot, give me the program and we're good to go. So you just have to understand everyone's different learning capacity and how they learn and what information they need to be able to move forward and be successful. Is it fair to say that as a coach, or at least the kind of coaching that we, I'm, I was doing and the kind of coaching that you're doing, and I should, let, let me tease out a little bit of that detail because I'm using the term coaching like it's some sort of generic word, which is not what I ever did and which is not what you're doing. And so the, co the coaching that I was doing was extremely boutique, real-time adjusted on an as-need basis rolling forward. 
And by that, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, I was taking in uh, data analysis of every single athlete. Any athlete that I worked with was responsible to contact me every single day, to upload their data every day, to give me the feedback on themselves every day, to make me aware of dot, dot, dot every day. We were in constant communication, and I was always boutique-adjusting their path forward. I did it for you. I did it for everyone, and that's the only way I wanted to coach. I call it coaching, but it was far more than coaching, in my opinion. Uh, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, 100%. I mean, there is a lot going on. It's, uh, you know, how did they sleep? Are they dehydrated? How is their nutrition? What stress do they have at work, at home? All of these factors uh, play in play a part in terms of how you're going to structure day-to-day -day activities. So it's, yeah, it's all-encompassing. Right, and, and, and it really was an extremely all-encompassing proposition every single day with every single athlete. But beyond that, I think one of the, the things that I had to learn in the early days was if I couldn't tease it out of a person the the data streams and the the fields and and how a person is doing in their head etc if i couldn't tease it out of them then um i had to i had to find a way to read their mind i mean is that a fair assessment yeah 100% some people want to share more than others and some you have to drag it out and it just depends and i think it is uh, these sort of live chats, and now when you can see someone, it's different if you're looking at a screen or an email. You can't quite read maybe what's happening. If you can see someone, then you get a sense of perhaps what's going on with them, their body language or what they're saying. It's hard to read that in an email. So sometimes it is sort of a guessing game, and hopefully uh, yeah. you get it right. But if you don't, then you just try again and, and uh, hopefully you get that feedback. It's a two-way communication. It is, and, and that's an extremely important point that um, you would know this. You've heard me say this before. Uh, in fact, uh, I think you've been present when I've had to do it. Uh, over those 15 years, I, and, and this is how I run my social media program right now. Um, and that's why I look forward to social media, because I only accept people that I want to work with which is what I did for 15 years, you know as well as I do that I turned down or, or refused to work with more people than, than, uh, than I could have. I turned away way more than I worked with. And that's just the way I had to run my coaching platform, the way I wanted to approach working with people because I invest so deeply into a person, because I engage with them so intensely, because I try to give everything that I've got for them. It means that I only want to work with people who want to work, who want to improve, who want to reach their best levels, who want to see their most awesome version of themselves. Life, our time on the planet is so short that I just couldn't give my time to someone who, who either A, didn't value my time, and it's not about the money, who didn't value my time or who, who didn't want it enough for themselves. And so... As a coach, I think it's important to select the correct candidate, the correct individual to work on behalf of them, to get the most out of them, because we've only got so much time to give. Is that right? Or would you disagree? Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, you've got to 
have the buy-in from the individual. And uh, like you said, if they don't want to work, do the work, well, then hit the road. Like, that's what we're doing here. We're getting to work, trying to do your best. And if you don't want to do that, well, you know, maybe it's not the right fit. So sign up for the work, and uh, that's what you'll get. <laughs> that's right. S sign up. And by signing up, it, that makes it not an ambush. <laughs> yeah, I think you've signed up for this, so you've got That's to right. be, play a part and, and, and take ownership for, for your journey. That's right. And, and, and it is quite a journey, of course. And depending on what kind of a coach uh, a person is working with, I mean, I guess I had a reputation of a, I had expectations but those expectations always manifested themselves into outcomes and those outcomes were always something that the athlete could be proud of and that i could be proud of their efforts i think that as a coach it there has to be a my what i got out of coaching wasn't the money because as you know like i charged the least amount of possible known to man in order to provide the service to just good people who wanted to be awesome so the money was didn't keep me in the game what kept me in the game was just getting to work with awesome people but more importantly making them more awesome so i i, I wouldn't have i wouldn't have taken on the wrong person for a million dollars but i would have taken on the right person for 10 bucks. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, as long as the person is positive and they want to learn, then it's worth it. And uh, just seeing them get better, it is completely worth it as long as they're invested and they, they want to get better and do the work. That's right. Now, let's, let's get into some tangibles. Do you know off the top of your head how many world championships we did together? Um... Well, let's see, we did California was the first one, Scotland and two Italy, so four. Right, right. And how many 24s did we do together, me as your coach? Uh, well, I've done 25 and you've been coaching me through all of them with the first one that I did. I thought, oh, this looks fun maybe, but I sure can't do it on my own. And I saw you, I thought, well, you look like you you know what you're doing so that looks like the guy so you're coaching me through them all uh, that's cool yeah I, I thought i had but i just wanted to confirm it and have you any sense of how many races i coached you through any idea i mean i, I was as i was just rambling on at the start i was thinking oh yeah coach her through some brack epics and blah 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 and i mean it's been a lot yeah. of races Honestly, I have no idea. I've, I've just sort of started to keep track of the 24 hours just uh, a while ago. The other ones, I honestly have no idea how many I've done. I mean, it's been 25, 24 hours, uh, stage races, some six hours, 100 milers, uh, some of the shorter ones, which is kind of what I started with was the shorter type races, That's the right. salt and the six, the eights, and then started to get into the – 24s and then i once i got one then i kind of never looked back and kept going. you didn't yeah you were only looking forward that's for sure and um what at what point and i you know again i don't have an agenda just as you're talking thoughts are coming through my head and i just want to ask various questions see if i can learn some things anyone can learn some things out of it 
At what point in the process did you start kind of believing that um, the process was working for you? Uh, well, I mean, you have to trust your coach. So part of it was at the beginning, especially with the 24 hour races, I thought, well, this is, you know, quite a bit to take on and how would this even work? You know, what would it eat? How would I stay awake? You know, but getting someone that you trust and is a good leader that made me feel confident that it would work. And then the more experience you get, then you feel confident in the process. I mean, of course I was terrified the first 24 hours. You don't know what's going right. to, what's going to happen. You're not sure what's going to go on, but as you do more and get more experience, then you feel confident, but it, you know, it takes, you've got to build a relationship with the coach, trust the coach, trust the process. There's always going to be questions, but as I went forward and started to see results, then you trust the process. You know that you're on the right track. You know you've done the work. So now it's just a matter of executing on the day. So it didn't take long. A couple of years into it, I felt like, okay, I'm on the right track. But anytime you do something new, then maybe the questions would come up. Well, I haven't actually done this course or I haven't done this kind of race. Am I ready? But you just have to trust that you've – I trusted you. You knew that you've always led me in the right direction. So I knew I was good to go. Now it's just up to me to execute on the day and do my best. So I don't and, think it's And you wrong. always did. I tried to do my best. Yeah, that was yeah, part of it. You always did. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. I should talk about that uh, because, you know, I've, I've casually introduced Julie, but what I didn't really talk about is your grit, your perseverance, your consistency, your discipline and focus, your understanding of your why, your prioritization all of the things that are important in order to be a, a successful 24-hour solo endurance racer, which, by the way, is, unless you've done one, you just don't know. You just don't know how hard they are. And I know, like, I've talked to people who've, who've casually said, oh, yeah, I bet that's hard. Yeah, I can't continue that conversation anymore because by stating that, you simply don't understand how hard it is. It's so freaking hard. Have you done anything? Have you done a harder sport? No, that's the hardest thing I've ever done. I would say that it's the hardest sport I've ever done. And I would put 24 hour solo mountain bike racing at a world championship level. Like when you, when you push in all your cards, when it's for all the marbles, that's some of the hardest stuff I've done in my civilian life or as a veteran, it's some of the hardest stuff that I've done. And I know that people, um, I used to, in fact, I might have explained this to you when, when you first uh, were thinking about getting into 24-hour solo mountain bike racing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I might have said to you, one of the valuable things about 24-hour solo mountain bike racing, and, and though I understand that there's some cost to entries and there's cost to training and there's cost to this and there's cost in time and et cetera, one of the things that I've learned through my own 24-hour solo racing is this. You save yourself a flight over to India where you spend 10 days in an ashram meditating and trying to learn who you are and then fly back and try to consolidate that moment into a crystallized notion of your learnings. You don't have to do that. You can save all that money and apply it towards a 24-hour solo mountain bike race where your world will shift at some point in that race where you will face all of your demons, where you will face all of your highs, where you will be crushed 
to a soul-like level and where you will come out of that fiery, fiery heat, uh, reshape, reform, recalibrated as to who you are versus who you thought you were. Is that off base? Oh, I, I don't remember that story, but uh, 100%, you know, what you're going to learn so much from yourself in the 24-hour process. There's going to be, something's going to happen at some point, and there's always a lesson to learn whether you win or lose. You're going to come away with some sort of knowledge, and as you said, uh, anything that you're hiding or the demons are going to come out in those dark hours, uh, oh, which... Uh, you know, we just did the race in Camor, and um, there was a young new athlete that did it. It was first 24-hour. And after the race, he kind of said, well, no one told me about those hours. We're like, well, we're not going to tell you. It's something you can learn. It happens. Learn. I mean, there's going to be a time it's going to get pretty dark. It really has. And like my first 24-hour solo, I've, I've mentioned this story a little bit, but um no, it was, I think it was the 2007 uh, race in Canmore. And uh, I remember competing against Leighton Vladevan. <sighs> Trying to keep up with that dude. That was a handful. Um, and so, uh, I, you know, just before I started the race, a, a professional racer who'd come up from the U.S. to crush it uh, looked at me and said, uh, you know, chirp, 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 but what are you using for pain? Uh, during the race, and I was like, what are you talking about, pain? I'm just going to keep racing. And he said, oh, no, you'll need pain. You'll need pain medic. You'll need this. You'll need that. You better get some. And so, like a fool, I listened to him. And I started taking uh, Advil during the race, and, and I was on liquid nutrition, of course, and uh, between the Advil and liquid nutrition, and by the way, I was drinking coffee at that time throughout the race, which was dumb. Uh, of course, uh, about 12 hours into the race, I was vomiting so hard on my hands and knees with just my headlamp, watching rocks move from the vomit, projectile vomit that I was hurling out. It was ridiculous. And, but I kept on racing, kept on doing that thing, you know, and uh, everyone was concerned. I wasn't concerned. I was just bummed that I was vomiting. And, uh, and of course, at the end of the race, the, the following day, I woke up, my legs were all swollen and and as it turns out, I had internal bleeding, had to go to the eMERGE because uh, Advil and high-stress racing and coffee and no solid food in your stomach is not a good combination. Lesson learned. But um, these are the things that you've got to do at the time to learn these lessons so that you can pass it on to uh, who will become your athletes in the future. I didn't know any better. I had to bump into those mistakes. But I think more importantly than um, any of that is I entered that race a really confident guy. Because in my head, I was a tier one operator. I'd done this, I'd done that. I was crushing this, I was crushing that. All of that nonsense that your ego tells you. But then 12 hours in, I'm on my hands and knees puking like I'm, uh, you know, I'm a three-year-old. And it was a real, you know, wake-up call for me in the sense of, oh, I've kind of got this, but I kind of don't. So I really, from that first race, I, I really sat up and paid a lot more attention to, I need to learn how to do this better. Yeah, 100%, and that's paying attention to, okay, well, who is doing a good job and what are they doing and what can I learn from them uh, to... 
And again, but everyone's different. What might work for one person may not work for the other. But certainly uh, having a bunch of coffee and Advil probably isn't the answer. It's so bad. But you know, out of that, what, what it did, as it does for me anyway, and I know it's the same for you, um, every time I've made a mistake, every time I've had a failure, I want to learn out of it. I want to get better for it, not just for myself, but for the people around me. And because of that incident, probably the best thing that could have happened, though it was uncomfortable at the time, don't recommend internal bleeding. Um, then I went on to understand the kind of silent epidemic of NSAIDs, uh, how it tears up the GI tract and how it's got all of these negative implications excuse me, um, in not only general application of sports, but certainly in hard charging, uh, hard racing aspects like 24-hour solo mountain bike racing. And so from that point on, I would always caution athletes on how they are managing the extremeness of the moment in respect to any form of medication and certainly not during training. I know that there's a bit of a prevailing theme out there, uh, certainly with a lot of uh, older athletes who think that a great approach to training is uh, pop some Advils, swig uh, some Red Bull, and then get on with getting on. And, you know, that's a terrible way to approach things. There's far better ways to approach things than that. But these are, these are entrenched mindsets that uh, take time to adjust. And that first hard lesson in that first race helped me adjust mindsets on, uh, in respect to NSAIDs. Yeah, I mean, unless you've done it, uh, you've got to learn the hard way sometimes. You do. So what, what would you categorize as your hardest race in your racing career? And, and I, I say that openly because it, be, it could be an injury, it could be a mistake, it could be a mental, it could be, it could be all kinds of things. But what would you consider as your hardest race? Uh, I would say, I mean, there's a couple, but Scotland and Italy, worlds, both of those have been super hard scotland uh i would say you know because of the conditions so heinous like it you know basically it, it rained the entire 24 hours uh so bad no no that... no no not just rained it's scotland rained oh yeah 100 percent. like so bad that you and also that it was i think it felt like it was the darkness never ended it was oh. just dark so dark, so so dark. I mean, freaking Noah's Ark kind of rain. Yeah, and so bad that actually when it did get light in the morning and you started, you could actually see the track again, you're like, man, this is pretty bad. Always a moment. It was hard. That was yeah. uh, pretty diabolical conditions. Yeah. Yeah, and then, it, you know, and then this year's Italy was the complete opposite. 38 degrees and humidity and just so one... Complete polar opposites. It really was. That was a that was a cracker race, and by yeah. cracker I mean it cracked so many people. Now, for people who aren't aware, uh, in in the Italy race I was supporting, I was a coach at that race uh, in a supporting capacity, and it was easy for me in working the pit, the coaching pit, uh, where uh, the athletes were coming in uh, on each lap 
to observe all of the pits around me. And because I've got so many races under my belt and because I've been coaching so many athletes under these circumstances for so long, um, it, within a matter of minutes, if not seconds of that race, I could start identifying he'll be gone in six hours. She'll be gone in eight hours. That dude ain't gonna last more than an hour. It's easy to see it in the moment when you've got a, an experienced eye. And so it's an interesting conversation, I think, this topic that as a coach, I see things differently, but as an athlete, you see things differently in race. So how many races do you think it took you as a racing athlete to observe in race as a racer who is going to start cracking? Who, who won't be there in 12 hours? You know, it's, it's hard to say. It took a while, to be honest, because um, I think you touched on this on one of your uh, conversations before. Sometimes you're just racing or you're just in a funnel and you're just so focused on yourself and what you're doing that you actually don't look around. And I would say I was like that quite a bit because you're just so laser focused on what's happening internally focused and you don't look externally what's happening around you. So it took quite a few races to, you know, with the 24 hours, I'd say, you know, sort of the halfway point, it takes a good 10 to start looking around and going, okay, what's happening and who's that person and what are they doing? And, uh, you know, about half of those races and all you start to look around and go, Hey man, like that person's going to crack or, and you think they're going to crack and sometimes they do, but sometimes they pull it off and uh, they're not, they're not going to crack. Yeah, I agree. You know, I, I, I was curious as to what your thoughts were. And I kind of feel the same way. It probably took me about 10, 24 hour solos. And for the crowd that's listening right now, I've done 30, 24 hour solos. It probably took me 10 to start kind of moving into that experience-based observation of, oh, now I don't have to focus on the details. Now I can autonomously offload my racing, and now I can start expanding my awareness to better observe the strategic unfolding of the race rather than all of the little tactical battles that are going on within each lap and lap to lap. Once I started observing the strategic aspects of the race, then I started better understanding how the entire game is played. And it takes a while to learn that. And it's like any new skill, I suppose, you know, that in the early days as a, as a, as a coach, what I would observe are athletes who in their first race were just barely holding it together on their bike in their own tiny little universe irrespective of what was going on around them. But as the races unfold, as the experience gains and as the lessons are learned and as the guidance improves, each athlete starts growing in themselves to then become more than just a, a person on a bike. Now they're observing the broader world around them or the race within the race, as it were. Uh, and I always loved seeing an athlete move into that higher level of awareness within the race. And, and, and again, I think you're right about that double digit point is what it takes, but that's a lot of racing. That's yeah. a lot of training. That's, that's kind of years of work to get to the point where you're like, Oh, now I see what's going on. Am I wrong? 
Oh, it's a lot of work. And I mean, again, but you've, you've got to be into it and, and enjoy it. And that's why you do it and you want to learn and get better. But yeah, you've got to put the work in and get that experience. And each one is different. Uh, sometimes you may sort of not be paying attention as much as you should. It, it's a process. But as you go, I mean, I've always kind of race my race i like to get into my zone and race my race and not get too concerned about what other people are doing especially with 24 hours yeah. you've got to do your own thing and then you know you start paying attention in the night and in the morning that's when people crack and when it really you've got to start paying attention to what's happening around you and you might have to start making your moves or, or see what's happening and and start watching the pits and see see what's up with everyone else that's right, and, and that's an interesting point on watching the pits because, of course, I've done a number of uh, 24-hour solo mountain bike races unsupported or as a solo racer with no one there to help me, as have you. And that's a wild difference between a supported race and showing up on the start line all by your lonesome. Those are two different outcomes, and they are definitely two different um experiences in the moment that feeling of dangling in the wind all by yourself versus now you've got a team around you that's an interesting trip right yeah 100 percent. and i think that's why you know i've i've done a few on my own and so that's really all you can do is race your race and do your best you don't have anyone telling you where you're at or what's your position do you have to change something you just have to listen to yourself and try to do your best and and in the end you finish the race and half the time you're like well sometimes you have a sense of how it went other times you really have no idea that's right but you just do what you can and uh and hopefully it works out <laughs> yeah but you know the the what i've seen uh, for myself and what I've seen when I've been supporting athletes in that coaching role at uh, hard, like big races, world championships and stuff, is um, I think sometimes the athlete learns more in the moment by themselves, all of those frustrations of being unsupported and, oh, my freaking light just died. I need a new light. No one's there to help me with my light. Now I've got to figure out batteries. My hands don't work and blah, blah, blah. You know, all the usual stuff that we have to work through. Um, I think that as an athlete, myself and everyone that I've watched, sometimes the broader lessons that are there to be learned aren't learned when you're self-supported. Because you're so busy, like, just solving all the tiny problems that just stack up constantly throughout the race. And you don't get to almost settle down a little bit because of that support and then be able to expand your awareness of, oh, there's meta lessons to be observed here. Is that on, is that on point, you think? Yeah, I would agree with that for sure. So um, give me an example of maybe your most catastrophic moment in a race. And by catastrophic, I mean, it doesn't have to be, you know, a, a hardcore wipeout. When I think of that, I was actually thinking of the Salty Dog, the six hour, where you uh, took a little bit of a skitter on the old cheese grater bridge. That was a gooder. Um, so you've had some moments where you've you've had some for lack of a better term, catastrophic moments in a race. Uh, but it might not be a mechanical, it might not be an injury, it might be something else. So is there a moment that you that you think of as, oh, I just, that was unbelievable? 
Uh, well, I mean, there's been a lot, but... Uh, For all of us. <laughs> there was one, uh, the Ireland 24-hour. That one, uh, you know, it's going along. Everything was fine. No issues. Just I didn't think there was any issues. And then I went out for a lap. And the next thing you know, I just started to feel super nauseous. And the next thing I know, projectile vomiting all over my bike. No idea what caused it. Just puke everywhere. Once I did that, it's like, oh, man, I, I feel a bit better. And I remember, like, I came into the pits, and I kind of just said, oh, just letting you know, like, I just puked everywhere, puked all over my bike, all my clothes, fell back for you <laughs> to, like, clean it up later. But it was just, you know, came out of nowhere. I had no idea what was happening or why, why it occurred, and I just had to – I wasn't sure. I thought, oh, I've just puked everywhere. Like, there's my race. What am, what am I going to do? But somehow I managed to carry on and and get through it. And so that was a bit of an eye-opener and just not knowing what to do or where it came from. That was that was a challenge for sure. Yeah, it was. That, that was a, and that was an interesting race in Ireland because, of course, I mean, you weren't just going to crush all the ladies there. You were there to crush all the men as well. So that was a fun race for for me as a coach to watch you putting the herd on a, a bunch of really capable, uh, hard charging men. And, and for anyone out there who's thinking, well, Sean, you're being very gender, you're being very almost sexist in comparing men to women racing. But you and I both know that there is a delta or there is a difference between a, a man racing a 24 hour solo and a, and a woman uh, racing a 24-hour solo. Of course, there's lots of women that will crush men in a 24-hour race. You, you've you probably beaten me in 24-hour races. I don't know. I'm just making that up, but you probably have uh, because you're a hard-charging, awesome, world-class 24-hour solo mountain bike racer that will crush a bunch of men. But apples to apples, world champion to world champion, the men are always uh, putting out more laps than women. And so... It's not that the man is a better athlete or is, or, or is mentally harder. It's just that physically, that delta, that those lap differences start showing up usually maybe, what do you think, a 10% increase? Uh, a, a, a male athlete, apples to apples, is putting out maybe 10% more laps than a female at a high level? Yeah, I would agree with that at a high level. I mean, if, if you're going high level, yeah, roughly. Yeah. Yeah, and so it was fun to watch you put the herd on all of those men at that Irish race because I don't think they'd ever really experienced that before um, in their uh, in their race careers. Is that fair? Yeah, I don't think they were too happy about it at the beginning. They were not and, happy. And, you know, even with all the adversity, I think that when I finished third overall, and even still I could tell some of the guys, like they weren't too stoked when I was up there. They were not. Most of them didn't say too much to me, to be quite frank. Uh, they weren't super stoked on it. Yeah, and uh, not to put too fine of a point on it, but <clears throat> while you were out racing, they also didn't care for the fact that I was just standing there with my arms folded, being professional and moving the Formula One race pit athlete through the process as you have always been very capable of doing. And they were watching an entirely different level of racing, of experience, of professionalism, and how it should be done. 
that was tripping them out. And so they weren't happy that you were kicking your, kicking their ass. And they weren't happy that I was kicking all the pits ass by running that game. And if you recall, um, what I was trying to do at that race, that's, I had a blown ACL at that point. And I was, our pit was about a kilometer away from where I could get Wi-Fi signal. And so I'd have to run a kilometer to get Wi-Fi signal to see what the, the updates on the laps were and then to update everyone who was following your race and, and everyone who was tracking in from all over the world who was trying to see how's Julie doing, et cetera. So it was a click and then a click back. And I remember like full sprint across through the cow manure uh, trying to see you come across the uh, flat section towards the pit, trying to get up to you. I'll be right there. It was crazy time. Yeah, the other athletes I remember at the end said, well, to their support, well, why aren't you running after me and, and you know, working as hard as this guy? That's right. That's right. But, you know, it's that that's a process that a coach has to learn you know i i've i've always tried to give them everything that i can for my athletes i've always tried to provide uh everything that i can but from my first coaching days to my final coaching days it's a process of refinement where you learn you can always give a little bit more you can always you can always run alongside your athlete giving them a a bottle a little bit longer and while you're running you can always help them through wise words or through motivation or through whatever it takes to draw that extra little bit out of them and that's just a process in itself as well of course yeah 100 percent. so how are you finding it now um at the races with your athletes how's that treating you yeah, good. I mean, it's uh, up until, uh, you know, the recent race that uh, Andrew and I had, I think Bovard's on the call here. Yeah, I see uh, him chirping. Chirping away. <laughs> but uh, up until, you know, the Frog Hollow one, we, I've been there, but I've been racing too. So I haven't been a coaching uh, hands-on per se up until, I mean, I guess this last one when I had a mechanical. So, then I was into the coaching role. So that was definitely different to then be a bit more hands-on to see what someone is capable and what messages you can send them to try to make them get better and, and just listen to maybe some of the stories they're telling themselves that maybe are just stories. It takes a while to learn that though, right? I mean, like for anyone who's listening right now, to understand the style of coaching that I imparted on people. And I know that Julie is now imparting on the athletes that she's working with. It's a very real time process. There is no template. There is no fixed solution. There is no, oh, in this moment, I'm just gonna draw out this solution from the Rolodex of solutions and, and deploy it word for word. Because there is no word for word. You kind of have to adapt to each moment as a coach and provide real-time solutions in real time. Am I wrong? Yeah, 100%. And I mean, you may see them on the course as well, which I have. So then same thing. It's just, uh, well, then you kind of have to get outside of your own head and go, okay, well, there's my athlete and maybe try to send them a positive message if if you can feel some negative vibes or what have you try to send them some kind of positive message. Even maybe you're just you know, suffering and having your little cry fest yourself. You have That's to right. get inside of that and, and be a bit bigger. That's right. It's, 
But it's a good thing, right? I mean, we, as coaches, I think, um, and, and you know this as well as anyone would, that I felt that my job um, over those 30, 24-hour solos was to learn how to do it well and then learn how to do it wrong. And so I always challenged myself to think outside of the box, unconventionally approach 24-hour solo mountain bike racing, which caused me to sometimes mm, choose solutions that just absolutely broke me, cracked me, destroyed me in a race. And, and those are things that I needed to do once I learned how to do it well. I needed to learn how to do it poorly in order to then impart those lessons to my athletes. And that's a humbling game because once you learn how to do something well and then you decide, now I've got to learn how to do it wrong, it's, it's not easy on your head. At least I didn't find it that easy. Yeah, you do some crazy stuff. I mean, like trying to race a fully rigid and uh, a two-four with you know really stuff carbon wheels like those sort of things. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. It's dumb. <laughs> I'm not. I have to say, I'm I'm not to that point that I've tried to uh, do things super crazy that perhaps I won't succeed. Uh, besides, you know, maybe doing some things in, in training per se, but not in a race. But yeah, that's how you learn, and and we all make mistakes. So whatever it is that you did, whether it was a smart choice or not, there's going to be some sort of lesson in it. For yourself for others. For sure. And I think one of the things that uh, you spoke about training that uh, I tried to do uh, for myself in order to learn things on behalf of my athletes, but I would also ask my athletes to do, and that is to create additional hardship. And so for me, it would be a case of I try to figure out how long I could ride on just water uh, or how long I could ride on half calories or how long, how hard, how fast, how big. Oh, yeah. Andrew Bovard <laughs> just put in a comment there. He said, no seatpost. So that's a funny story. And, and I think it's relevant to what I was just about to say. So um, I'll use this as an example to make my point. When I was racing at, um, it was, I got my world championship jersey in 2009. So the following year, I was going to try to defend that world championship jersey. So that was in Australia, Canberra, 2010 World Championship. And I think I was about 20 hours into the race, hard charging, fighting for the podium. And uh, my seat post cracked. And I had to take the seat post uh, off the bike. I had to take the saddle off the bike, put them in my jersey pockets, and then race my bike like a freaking lunatic to pass people, to make up the time, to get back into the podium standing. And racing without a, a seat post and saddle, it's not smart, but it's definitely not smart at the pace that I was racing it. I, I learned some lessons in that lap. And what I learned beyond how difficult it is, is that moment where I had to say to myself, I was in the running, but this just happened. And now what am I going to do about it? And I was still in the game, even though it was incredibly difficult. And um, in order to do that, I had to rely on my mental game, my mental fortitude of, of not shrugging my shoulders and saying, oh, well, I guess the race is over. What I did do when that moment happened was look at the problem, face the problem, execute against the problem, and then treat it like it wasn't a problem. Holy moly, we've only got 26 seconds left. What the heck? We've got to do this again. 
but I've got to save this. You know how it goes. I hope I can save this. 16 seconds left. Let's do it again. All okay. right. All right. Okay. See you.